The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Wow, this is a great passage of Scripture. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to love people within the church. That's a, that's a big challenge. And I, I like to think of, you know, we, we often refer to the church as a family. I want you to think of the church as a family. And what does a family look like? A lot of times siblings that argue and fight and then, you know, they just leave, right? No, they stay and they work it out and they love one another. They do life together. And that's what we're called to do. And so that's, you know, that can be a challenge. But then Paul goes into this last section of of Romans 12. And I think, you know... It's one thing to love people who mostly agree with you. It's another thing to love people in the world. And that's what this last section really deals with. That we are called to love people in the world. And that can be a lot more challenging. And and I think especially times are just getting weird, to be honest. And it's that much more difficult Paul goes on and he tells us that we are actually to bless those who persecute us. And I, for most of my Christian life, I just think, ah, that's talking about, and still even today, I don't, you know, persecute. That's such a strong word. And we think of uh, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world who are martyrs, who are facing actual persecution. And and that's not a word that we tend to think of and use here, but maybe maybe it's coming in different forms, or maybe you're experiencing it now in, in different forms. So this last section of Romans 12, it has to do with the world. Because though there can be conflict in the church, uh, you know, we only receive persecution from the world. So that's why I would say this is, this is an encouragement or a command to how we, how we love the world. Living the Christian life in the world, it will, if you live the Christian life and you engage with people in the world, it will eventually lead to conflict. It has to. Um, if it doesn't, then you're, not, you're probably not speaking the truth of your faith because as you know as societies change worldviews collide and biblical truths are not popular so if we believe and we speak biblical truth eventually if we get out of our safe christian subculture and we befriend and we love unbelievers, eventually there's going to be some form of challenge, some criticism, some attack upon what you believe. And so we should expect that. Paul moves from loving the church to loving well in the world. And with that, with an assumption that that Christians, he assumes that Christians are going to actually do the Great Commission. That we are not going to isolate and uh, stay within our Christian bubble. And I say that 
Um, you know, when I think about my life, I grew up <laughs> downtown Medford, above a Christian bookstore. I worked in a Christian bookstore. I don't know, 5% of the customers coming in maybe unbelievers. For the most part, it's this Christian subculture, this Christian bubble. I moved from that to become on staff here at the church. I, my life is mostly equipping. You know, that's, I guess, the area that God has called me. But still, you know, I live in a neighborhood. And so this is really challenging because it's like, wow, am I really loving and engaging with my neighbors as I ought to? No. And I need to. So this is really, this is really a challenge. So I want you to, I want you to picture a small town. Isn't that beautiful? Small town with a little, little church, single church building where Christians in town, they gather on Sunday to worship and they enjoy Christian fellowship where they're equipped to then leave and to go out from that building to go into this cute little town with a mission. The mission is Jesus's great commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He then says, therefore, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore, because I have authority, because this is my kingdom, go and make disciples. The town, I want you to think of the town as God's kingdom. That is our mission. We tend to think of this as the kingdom of God. No, this is the church. And then you go out from the church into his kingdom, into the kingdom of God. It belongs to him. He has authority over it. He, he is the king. So don't think of kingdom work as Sunday. Kingdom work is not limited. It, it's part of it. But kingdom work is not limited to those in full-time Christian ministry. No, think of, think of Sunday as church, the gathering of God's people, and then Monday through Saturday as going out into the kingdom, going out into the town, into your various spheres of influence. And what are your areas of influence? It might be, you know, practical needs within the family, equipping um, kids to go out into the kingdom of God and have influence in, in their areas. It might be your occupation. It might be social gatherings, neighborhoods, community service. We go out as workers in God's kingdom, doing our jobs, doing them with integrity, doing them with excellence, contributing to the good of society, loving well within the kingdom. So we need not to simply think of the kingdom of God. Also, don't think of it as, you know, some future glorious reign and day. Yes, it will be more fully realized, but Jesus is not waiting to be king. Jesus is king right now. He has all authority. 
we are to go out into the kingdom and represent him and make disciples. Jesus is king over all. And we need to love well within his kingdom. So I want to focus on, on this. Let's focus on loving well in this bigger sphere of the world. And um, let's go ahead and read our, this uh, text, Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be over, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verses 14 through 16, they give us some general principles of loving action. And then verses 17 through 21 give more specific principles of, you know, how do we love when we've been wronged? And here's the challenge, and here's the importance of realizing who we are and what God has called us to do. As Christians, we are not our own. Jesus is our king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he tells us what to do. Unlike the culture, we of all people should know that that we are not king. We are not the center of the universe. We are not free to take on the world's thinking with the attitude that says, stand up for yourself. Put yourself first. Get it while you can. So we need to keep Philippians 2 in mind, which tells us to have the mind of Christ. Having the same love, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves. Unlike the world, our goal is not self but it's to love like Jesus. That's our goal. Jesus actually is the center of the universe, but he humbled himself. Think of that. He actually is the center of the universe, but he humbled himself and he loved and he served and he sacrificed. And we're being conformed into the image of Christ, and so that's our calling as well. So if we... If we do stand up for someone, let's stand up for truth, his truth, and represent him as he instructs us. And with this goal in mind, we need to ask, we need to ask, how does God tell us to love within his kingdom? How does God tell us to love within his kingdom? Here's a few questions that we might ask. Do I avoid my liberal neighbors? 
Do I make politics the goal? Do I shun and secretly hate people who espouse LGBTQ ideas? More and more, these are, these are the realities that we're facing. And it's so much easier to stay within our areas of comfort and agreement. But Jesus tells us to go into the world and be a blessing to the very people that, what, we'd rather avoid, if we're honest. And I think we hesitate in doing so sometimes. We hesitate in going out and really loving and befriending because we're afraid that this act of blessing might communicate some agreement with them. And we don't want to communicate that. And that's understandable. And this, this may be a concern, but our bigger concern ought to be, am I just making an excuse to avoid doing what God actually tells me to do? And we are told to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. Maybe you read this and you think, but nobody's, you know, nobody's really persecuting me. Does that mean I, that I'm doing something wrong? <laughs> Maybe I need to bring on some persecution? And uh, no, don't go looking for it. Um, you might wonder, you know, who should I bless? What does it look like? And I suppose, again, if we engage with the world, if we get involved and we, we seek out ways to be kind, which eventually lead to conversations about life and things that are important to us, at some point, don't worry, somebody's not going to like you. <laughs> and of course, that's not the goal. The goal is not to get people to not like you, but it, it shouldn't catch us off guard when it happens. We should have right expectations that as we do kingdom work, there will inevitably be conflict. So we're not trying to create it. No, verse 18, in fact, tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We want to live peaceably with all. But we don't want to be caught off guard when there is conflict that we, you know, we didn't ask for. But it's just a, a result of being a Christian. Our goal is not conflict. As far as it depends on us. Let there be peace. But don't let peace, don't let that be the goal to the, to the extent that it keeps you from going and making disciples. And, and then don't be surprised if a form of persecution comes as a result of that. If persecution does come, we shouldn't view it. You know, sometimes we can, we can oftentimes we tend to excuse our sin when someone sins against us. You know, when they sin against us, we think we can give it back because we're just defending ourselves. But then that form of giving it back might be sinful. So don't think of persecution. Don't view it as a license to sin, making it about ourselves. Again, it's not about us. We want to not lose sight that this is God's kingdom. And in verse 14, he tells us to bless Oh, that's a challenge, to bless and not curse. But the more we realize that it's not about us, 
the less of a challenge that it really should be. I want to share something from this book. Man, get this book on sale now at Evangel. Uh, it is, who was it? Um, some, is it J.P. Moreland? Some smart apologist down a, huh? Is it on there? Oh, I did put that on there. Look at that. <laughs> this is the most important book I have recommended in over 20 years. There's a couple of books right now that we should all be reading. This is one of them. And the other, I'm going to give a plug for Cornerstone Lecture Series, May 1st, Cornerstone Christian Church here in town. They usually bring in incredible speakers, poorly attended. Sadly that it's poorly attended. They're bringing uh, Carl Truman, who is excellent. And his new book is the other book that we all need to read. It's called... um, What is it? I'll think of it. But it deals with a lot of the the social, the gender issues. Um, And other people have said, this is the book of the century. This is the best book in the last 20 years. So with these two books, I'm hearing comments. This is the best book in the last 20 years. And, um, oh, did you find that title? Triumph of... Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. He, he, um, he kind of does a history of philosophy and basically says, you know, it wasn't the sexual revolution of the 60s. There was a lot of things leading up to that that brought that about, that brings about a statement. He says, you know, here's a main statement why I wrote this book. I heard someone say, Uh, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. That was the statement. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And he said, you know, if my grandpa were still alive, and if he heard that, he would have just burst out laughing, thinking this person is just being silly or nonsensical. But today, people hear that and think that it's an actual statement. And, you know, an actual, that's something that we should all think and believe. And so that's kind of, he jumps off from that and gets into these gender issues. So that's a great book to grab. But I want to share this, some from this book, uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, because um, there's been a major change in our society in the way that people communicate. And I'm afraid that you've been affected by it as well. If you're engaged in social media at all, You've probably, you're probably frogging the kettle a bit with this. There's a way in which our society has changed in how we communicate. Generally speaking, people assume today the worst instead of the best in people who are on the opposite side of their political or social agenda. There is no grace. There is no charity. There is no benefit of the doubt. No genuine listening for the sake of justice and truth. And it's important for us as Christians, if we're going to rightly love in this world that communicates in this way, to be aware of this change and not to get sucked in and just give it back 
And that's real tempting to do so. We are obviously in this polarized, divided society. And here's a contributing factor. I want to read a little bit from this book. The author writes, Conversations about social justice in a polarized age tend to generate more heat than light because of a phenomenon we may call the Newman effect. Anybody heard of the Newman effect? Not Seinfeld. Okay, the Newman effect. In 2018, Canadian psychology professor Jordan Peterson, heard of him? Yeah. 2018, Canadian psychology professor Jordan Peterson joined Channel 4 host Kathy Newman to discuss gender inequality in what became one of the most viral interviews of the 21st century. The lively exchange sparked the so you're saying meme. Uh, So you're saying meme based on Newman's repeated use of that phrase to interpret Peterson's statements in the most unflattering and inflammatory light possible. So you're saying that anyone who believes in equality should basically give up because it ain't going to happen. You're saying that's fine. The patriarchal system is just fine. You're saying that women aren't intelligent enough to run these top companies. uh, Peterson wasn't saying any of that. But because his perspective did not fit neatly into the black and white boxes of our day, anything that seemed out of sync with Newman's perspective was taken in the most extreme, cartoonish, and damning way possible. The truth is, the author writes, the truth is we are all Kathy Newmans now. And that has become a serious existential threat within the church. Racism is still a problem. So you're saying we should abandon the gospel and embrace neo-Marxism. Black lives matter. So you're saying all lives don't matter? The fact that 70% of black children are born without married parents in the home should matter to us. So you're saying you're a racist, blaming the victim and saying the black community's problems are completely their own fault. Marriage is a complementary union between a male and female. So you're saying you hate gay people. This is how we communicate. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we should shelter in place to protect the most vulnerable. So you're saying you're anti-freedom and you want us all to bow to tyranny. We should reopen the economy to help those whose livelihoods and mental health are being devastated by the quarantine. So you're saying you want the virus to spread and more people to die. You get it? This is the Newman effect. The list could go on and on. This is what conversations about important questions, this is still him, I'm quoting. This is what conversations about important questions have reduced to in our day and age. The only way someone could possibly disagree with me is if they are a bad person, a sworn enemy of justice. And so we tar and feather any dissonant idea with the worst ideologies that we can imagine. The result is rampant self-righteousness a loss of humble self-criticism, widespread confirmation bias, a loss of real listening required to reach nuanced truths, 
and pervasive partisanship, a real loss of community that requires us to give charity and the benefit of the doubt to others. Man, when I read that, I was just like, yes, that's it. That is us. And I don't want to be that. And again, social media just invites, not that you should be on social media. I mean, unless it goes against your conscience and it just causes you to sin, you should be on social media because we need to speak truth, but not, you know, it's nuanced. Um, We need to be creative, ask good questions. More and more, this is the environment in which we live. This frog in the kettle effect on us, we need to recognize it. We need to resist it if we're going to rightly love. The answer isn't to avoid social media. It's not to avoid the world. No, we're called to bless. Wow. Okay, how do we... We're called to bless and not curse. And, oh, we feel so justified to just give it back, right? In the same kind of attitude, not assuming that this person has a genuine concern and there might be a a real injustice here. So have you been affected by this? Yes, I think we all have. If so, then it's going to be... It's going to be impossible to listen and love and be a blessing as Jesus tells us to, unless we realize this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We need to love those who are opposed to us. We need to figure out ways to bless those who hold another worldview. And maybe in doing so, we'll have some impact and possibly re- bring about a reverse effect to this, this Newman effect. Maybe people will see that, that we actually care, that we have something to say, that God will use us and, and use us to be a blessing in the kingdom. You know, we need to be salt and light and have a good effect. Many of you know uh, the story of Rosaria Butterfield. And I want to show a short video of her conversion story because I think it's a great example for us to not be so threatened, to not be so resistant to those who are opposed to our beliefs, but to simply bless and befriend them instead. So let's watch a bit of this. We live at this time where so many Christian ideas are understood as hate speech. After the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, that put the gospel on a collision course with the new law of the land. And I think many Christians have been struggling with, well, how do I speak? What do I do? How do I move forward? is a vital place to invite your neighbors in to have some heartfelt conversations. We can love our children together. We can let some things slide, even though the world we live in would say that we're supposed to be enemies. To me, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. 
I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York. In our LGBTQ community, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things it brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife, Floyd, invited me to dinner, I was happy. I, th I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I, I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug. Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun. Can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful, because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything. Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism. Not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect. 
or our words being perfect. But show up, we must, in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us, <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors and takes neighbors and makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies. And it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. you love that? That looks like fun, doesn't it? To love people in that way, to not be threatened. Hmm. We need to do life with people who are different than us. Hmm. We need to be neighbors who bless. Verse 15 speaks of this. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We use this, um, and it's true, we use this within the community of the church. But the context here is really the world. This is life, times of celebration, happiness, times of sadness. And if we're going to do life together, we should sympathize. We should share in these moments. And uh, we do tend to think of this as applying to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it absolutely does. But again, what's the context here? The context is loving the world. So yes, rejoice and weep with brothers and sisters, but it's primarily speaking of what doing life in the world should look like. Be happy with them at good news. Celebrate the birth of a child, a new job, an anniversary. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Come alongside the sick and the grieving. Don't feel like, you know, like she said, don't feel like you have to immediately share the gospel. You know, use discernment. The Lord will open the opportunity. Pray for that discernment, timing. Realize that it's okay and it's probably best in the moment of sadness to just Just sit with them and cry. Let them know you care. Love in action. And look at how this so perfectly leads to the next thought in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Don't feel superior. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Our society tends to divide over... A lot of things. Economics, 
We can associate with, we tend to associate with people who are really similar to us. And Christians, of all people, should set a different example by loving and befriending people of all types. After all, this is what our faith looks like, right? Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. There are no classes within Christianity that are based on ethnicity, status, or sex. No, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So we of all people should know what it is to show no partiality. And this attitude needs to, it needs to spill over in the church and into our relationships as we love people in the world. Living in harmony. Not feeling or acting contrary to the grace that we have received. Not having a sense of superiority, but associating with the lowly. After all, we of all people, we should recognize we should recognize that they are image bearers, made in the image of God, beautiful. Because of that, we are called, we are commanded, we are commanded to love them. Many of you do this really well, and maybe you haven't realized it, but you've been doing kingdom work. It's significant. It's obedient. It's glorifying to God. But all, all of this living in harmony, it does require some discernment, doesn't it? There will be times that you might discern that it's best not to participate because it would be sin for us or it would be confusing as if we're endorsing sin. So you've got to use discernment. But on the, for the most part, be involved. Love. So your mission of love, we need to pray and think with biblical wisdom and discernment so that we might rightly bless and live with our neighbors and not come across as arrogant or superior. Verses 14 through 16 encourage this caring heart that is open and vulnerable in loving unbelievers. It paints a picture of harmony, whereas these final verses give a different picture. The atmosphere in these verses is one of hostility. How do we love well when we are wronged? When we are wronged, worldly wisdom says, get even. Stand up for yourself. But God gives us a different wisdom here. He commands, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I assume that you women think differently than men. 
And if I were teaching this in a room full of men, I'd expect that they would latch on to verse 20 with a sense of relief, saying, yes, that's the goal. Let's heap some burning coals on that guy's head. That'll show him. But certainly a room full of, you don't think that way. Not, no, no. Now, obviously, this attitude completely misses the point. Bless those who persecute you. Do not avenge yourself. Do good. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I want to think about two principles in this last section of Romans 12. The first principle is trust God. So simple, but so hard at times. Trust God. Worldly wisdom says, don't get walked on. Stand up for yourself. Get even. Oh, I'd like to give you some burning coals on your head. No, trust God. Do you believe that God is a just judge? Do you believe that his, his timing is right? Do you believe that he sees, perfectly sees, that he knows what's going on in your life? In that circumstance, might he have some purpose in this? Trust God. Trust God to the point of realizing that you don't need to get even. You really don't. He'll take care of it. He sees. Nobody is getting away with anything. It may seem like they are, and you may not like God's timing, His timing of justice. It seems like they're getting away. But he sees. He's going to do what's right. You can trust God because we are told here, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Use discernment, but ultimately have a heart that trusts God with the outcome, that doesn't respond or think like the world. And sometimes you might Go through, you know, you might go through all the right and proper, appropriate means of clarifying a situation with someone, defending yourself, and still, have you ever been in a situation like this? You, you know, they think horribly of you, and they misunderstand, and you try to clarify, and you're defending yourself, and nothing, you realize, nothing I say is going to change their mind. They think I'm a horrible person. They think I did wrong in this situation. They don't believe me. And they unfairly accuse you. So sometimes you go through all of that. And this passage should give you a sense of freedom. It should settle us. And keep us from being stuck in frustration. Instead of growing more and more angry and frustrated, there is a time... There is a time for us to say, Lord, there is nothing I can do to change this person. There's nothing I can do to change this situation. It's unjust. But I know you see. I know you know my heart. 
I know that you know I'm innocent in this. And I know that I can trust you to do what's right in your timing. And there comes a time for all of us to ask ourselves, this is really hard, but there comes a time to ask ourselves, is that good enough? Is it good enough for me that God sees, even if everybody else thinks I'm a jerk or I've wronged them and it's not true? And I can't convince them otherwise. Is it, am I okay knowing that God knows the truth? A second principle that we're given here is do positive good. (laughs) Do positive good. Don't redefine good as I'll give her some burning coals. That's what's good for her. No, if your enemy is hungry, humble yourself. Trust God. Do the good of bringing him or her some food. Now, be honest with that food, right? Don't let that chicken set out on the counter a little extra long. And bring this nice chicken. Oh, I hope. Hope it does its work. No, do do positive good. (laughs) Surprise them. With a good unexpected. The world expects hatred and retaliation, turning a cold shoulder, avoiding. But God says, do good. If you see a need, bless them. And yes, the combination of these two principles may lead to some burning coal of shame and guilt. It really is speaking of something there. But leave that to God, right? Let your motive just be to do good. Know that, that one way that he may deal with them is by using your, your good motives and your blessing to them, your positive blessing to touch their conscience, to make them ashamed for how they've treated you, to make them feel guilty. But that's God's business. Let your motive be pure. Your goal is not to make them feel guilty or to cause them pain. No, you are simply to desire their good. You are called to be an unexpected instrument of blessing. And God may or may not use your blessing to make them ashamed. And turn them from their sin. Or he may use your blessing to harden their heart. And the burning coals are a vengeance of ultimate condemnation. One that none of us would wish on anyone. That's God's business. What we need to keep in mind is our role. What is our role? And what has God called us to do? And what is God's role? And that he sees and he will do what is always best. So we can trust him. We can trust him to the point of making it our aim to bless and to do good and to not repay evil. And as far as it concerns us, to live peaceably with the world. And in doing so, in doing so, we will love well.
Let's pray. Oh, Father, your word is perfect. Help us to take it at face value and to not twist it and justify doing what is contrary. Give us wisdom and discernment in areas where we fear our actions may dishonor you. Lord, help us to recognize that these instructions are not simply helpful tips and suggestions, but they are your command that you tell us to bless people, to be hospitable neighbors and compassionate friends. Help us to trust you in areas of justice and to do good. Oh, Lord, and sadly, your church has developed a bad reputation. Some of it deserved, some of it unjust. And I ask that you would help us to represent you well. Help us to love well within the church so that people take notice and they desire your grace. And help us to love well within your kingdom, to love well in the world, that it be received, that it have an impact and ultimately glorify you. So give us this heart of love for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.